from rainy Northern Virginia, it's the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for March 28th, 2018. I'm your host, Bo Dewar, and I know that I promised I wasn't going to be doing many more solo podcasts for a while. I would line up interviews and so forth, but a couple of things have happened. One is that I've got a couple of people who shall remain nameless who are sort of going around in circles with me people in official positions or in unofficial positions, and we just haven't nailed down a time yet. And I couldn't wait to do another podcast because I have a bit of an announcement. And that announcement is that the Ranting Soccer Guide to Youth Soccer is officially underway. This afternoon, I posted the first of what I'm calling the area guides. I was thinking of going state by state, But I realized in my own area that doesn't make a lot of sense because everything is sort of clustered around the D.C. metro area. And so instead of going literally state by state, it's going to be area by area. So the, the New York City metro will be another one. Then in some cases it'll follow where the state associations go. Georgia, uh, which I might do next actually does most of its play within the state. Then Cal North and Cal South, because essentially the state is already split for me. And then in other regions, we'll see. I mean, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to do Missouri. You've got to do St. Louis, and then you've got to do Kansas City. And I tried to do that a bit in a blog post that I did this week, where I looked up everyone who is currently on the men's or women's national team or has recently been called in uh, which was it took a bit of time to do that I mean all the information well most of the information is at Wikipedia but my my principle with Wikipedia is that I'll go there to find out something but then I'll verify it for example I mean it I'm not just going to be able to type into Google, what youth club did Becky Sauerbrunn play for? It's not suddenly going to pop up JB Marine. You know, Google's not that sophisticated yet. So it helps to go to Wikipedia and have them say, oh, okay, Becky Sauerbrunn played for JB Marine. And then, okay, I can go verify that. And then I checked out a lot of players' bios, either on the U.S. soccer site uh, or um, or through their colleges because their colleges often, not always, but often have club information. They're starting to, they're, they're better about that than they used to be. I don't, I think in the, when I was in college back in the Stone Age, I don't think they listed clubs. They just listed high schools because everyone still played high school soccer at that point, and that's not true anymore. So anyway, when I get to Missouri, there's going to be a Kansas City edition, which will, you know, reach over into Kansas itself. There will be a St. Louis edition, which we'll see. I'm not sure uh, how much the St. Louis leads reach across state boundaries. Uh, They're not that far away, but we'll see how that goes. So the first guide is up, and the first guide is free uh, because I wanted to give people a sense of what I'm trying to do and show people. It makes more sense to see, oh, okay, so you've got these candid descriptions of these different leagues and Google Maps showing how far all these leads stretch. So hopefully that'll be helpful. 
and then I can take feedback and say, well, here's something that needs to be changed. I can certainly update the DC metro area guide if there's something that needs to be changed, although this is an area that I've done a fair amount of research in, in part because I live here. But then someone might say, hey, I have a ton of information that may be helpful about Washington State uh, or Western New York or New England. So I'm excited to get that moving. And then if you want to support that and also to see future guide pages, which will be password protected, then you need to go to Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash rantingsoccerdad. And this is all on the site. I'll put this all in show notes um, so you can find out all this information and see what's here. I just wanted to get it across to the podcast audience that this project I've been talking about launching for a few weeks now has finally launched. And the good thing about it is I can go bit by bit. So if and that's the goal. I'm just going to keep going until I've covered the U.S. and then I'm going to keep updating. So that is the big announcement. So for the rest of this, I wanted to talk about what you might call the generation gap in U.S. soccer discussions. There are people of my age, and I'm in my late 40s, who can remember when there was very little soccer to watch. We all loved soccer made in Germany if we knew it existed, which was on PBS. And a lot of people watched PBS in those days because there weren't that many TV channels. And the NASL of the 70s and 80s got better ratings as a percentage uh, than MLS does today. But you have to remember, there weren't a lot of options. You had NBC, ABC, CBS, PBS, and then a couple of independents. That's about it. So we remember the old days when there was nothing. And we remember people who were skeptical that Major League Soccer would get off the ground. The newer generation, you know, millennials and so forth. And first, let's say this right off the bat. Millennials, I know you get a bad rap. You really do. Every generation of young people comes up thinking that they know everything. Young people are, by their nature, kind of arrogant. The difference for us was that Generation X, I think, had its voices amplified a lot less than other generations did. The baby boomers had a huge voice because they were they were a large generation uh, and because they came up through a turbulent time in the 60s when, as, as the song for what it's worth goes, young people speaking their mind, they spoke through rock and roll they spoke at Woodstock. Uh, they spoke through movies, and they spoke through bad poetry. They had a big voice. Generation X came along and didn't have as much, and then the next generation came in rather quickly. And they had the tools of social media that we didn't have. I mean, I first posted on a message board when I was maybe 23 or 24, but it wasn't the sort of thing, it, it was walled off. It was on Prodigy. You know, only a handful of people could read it. Now you can tweet and thousands of people can read it. Quite a difference. So 
Generation X hasn't really had as much of a say as other generations had, which I don't bring up so I can say that I'm bitter about it. <laughs> I'm bringing up just because I think part of the backlash against millennials is that your voices really are amplified so much. And in some cases, that's good. We just had a march in D.C. and marches all over the place that were led by young people. Hundreds of thousands of people, possibly millions by the time you add up everyone who participated in some way. So that's great. The bad news is when you come out and start saying things that don't take any history into account, well, then it's easy to call you out on it. And that's, that's what happens a lot in promotion relegation debates. And let's be clear here. I'm not saying that because those of us old farts who remember when there was no MLS and no real domestic pro league to speak of, and the U.S. didn't qualify for World Cups at all for 40 years, I'm not saying that means that we should all just look at MLS and be grateful and not expect any improvement. Maybe be grateful to some extent, because there were people who took a big risk to start this league and to get it going and to keep this league going in 2002. And there are some people who appreciate that and there are some people who really don't. And there are some people who don't realize that soccer history goes back before 1990, before the U.S. started its string of qualifying for World Cups. And it realized that U.S. soccer was once a fairly impoverished organization. I'm of the frame of mind that promotion relegation discussions have been getting better. It used to be that if people came in and made their little assumptions about how, oh, if, you know, only when went promotion relegation, everything would be better. The national team would be better. There was someone who even said the media would be better. And I thought, what? What do you mean the media would be better? And you know, this is someone who has no idea that you know I've spent my my journalism career for the first half of it arguing with baby boomers and my fellow Gen X people that we should be covering soccer at all. You know, that's taken a long time to do. And then we win that battle, and then all of a sudden the millennials are coming up behind us, uh, yelling at us that we don't cover it right. And look, it, it, just because you know the history doesn't mean that you have to repeat it. It doesn't mean that you have to put limits on things. It means that you have to understand the circumstances that have led to where we are now. Why is Major League Soccer a closed system? Because no one was bidding to do anything different in 1993 when it came up. Yeah, I know there was the Fricker plan that supposedly hinted at promotion relegation. Uh, I urge you to check out Steve Holroyd's discussion of that memo. That really was nothing more than just kind of spitballing. It never went anywhere. It never reached the formal proposal stage, certainly. The reason is, you can't really do promotion relegation until you have enough teams to do it. Because they don't understand that the open system is very far from the only thing that separates the U.S. from the rest of the world. The example I think of is 
in World War I, the great stories about Christmas Day in the trenches, when English and German soldiers who spent the other 364 days of the year uh, keeping a close eye out, and if you moved out of your trench, you were going to get shot or you're going to get poison gas or something. On Christmas Day, they popped out and they played soccer. That shows you how deeply entrenched soccer was in those countries at that time. And it hasn't changed. It's still deeply entrenched in those countries. The U.S., for all the growth we've seen in the last 20 years, isn't close to that today. Where were we 20 or 30 years ago? Nowhere near. So no one was suggesting that, you know, hey, let's put up a promotion relegation system. Let's have all these clubs uh, create this national thing because the, no one was ready to do that. So you can't just say MLS has been the evil entity that has kept down promotion relegation in this country because MLS is what it is. It was founded to take us from zero to 40, to build off of nothing and put something in place. And it's done that. That's why the subtitle of my book, which I had misgivings about, my publisher wanted to call it the success story of Major League Soccer. I hesitated for a bit. In retrospect, I wish I had hesitated more and put up more of a fight about it. I forget what I wanted to call it initially, but that's what they went with, the success story of Major League Soccer. And I finally acquiesced on that because yeah, it is a success in the sense that it created a league where there was none. And when I wrote the book, it was published in 2010. It was a success by any sort of metric you could talk about. Essentially, it was still there. Other leagues hadn't lasted as long. You know, the NASL was a, a nice fad, essentially, in a few cities. You know, league-wide attendance was never that great. You know, it, it would draw 60,000, maybe even 70,000 to a uh, giant stadium to go see Pele and Beckenbauer and those people for the Cosmos, and then it would draw 4,000 somewhere else. And, you know, I know you can say, oh, well, MLS crowds don't look that good. Look... Don't be, don't be that guy. Don't be so disingenuous. You know, yeah, are there, are you going to see the occasional crowd that's announced as 11,000, but maybe there were only 7,000 in the seats? Yeah, that's fairly standard. If it were up to me, every sports team in the world would announce its attendance three ways. They would announce tickets sold, tickets distributed, and people who were actually at the game. All three of those are useful. What you end up getting is essentially maybe tickets sold, maybe tickets distributed. There are a lot of season ticket holders out there in, in all sports. That's why I went to an NBA game where I had to shout to talk to anyone who was next to me because next to me was 10 seats over and they announced attendance around 20,000. That's fairly typical. But look, we are comparing apples to apples here. I mean, these are not new practices. So don't tell me, oh, well, you know, I looked at the Revolution game and they, the stadium looked pretty empty. So that, that's the equivalent of this league from, from the 1970s. No, it's really not.
MLS has an average attendance over 20,000. Now, does that mean butts in seats were over 20,000 overall? No, but it was pretty high, comparatively speaking. So all of that has to be borne. All of that has to be borne in mind. That's something we have to consider. And so MLS has gone from zero to 40, has outlasted all these other leagues, is in much better shape than any league that we've had in the past at this point in its history. And yet, it could be better. And that's where the conversation needs to be. You know, it doesn't do you any good to start yelling about MLS being evil because U.S. soccer hasn't produced enough uh, good players. No. It just means that we haven't gotten there yet. And maybe if we open things up, maybe if it's an open system that uh, encourages pro academies across the country to where we have, you know, not a hundred some clubs that are just in the development academy, but a hundred some clubs that are actually professionalized in the development academy, maybe that'll be better. Maybe that'll help the lead structure. Maybe that'll help the national team. Maybe that'll help create a soccer culture because that, that's the thing. An open system is a symptom of a thriving soccer culture. It's not the cause. If it were the cause, then China, with its billion-plus people and its decent economy and its open system, somewhat, I don't know that much about the open the system in China. I know some of these systems, like in Mexico, are open, but they're a little shaky. But why isn't China better than us? Why isn't India? And why is a country like Uruguay better than, say, Poland? It's because of the culture. That's it. That's the big determination. Now, if you say an open system will create a better soccer culture, okay. That's a viable argument. But what I'll say about these arguments is that you need to drop the accusatory nonsense. You need to understand where people are coming from when they tell you the history and tell you why things are the way they are and then the obstacles that have to be overcome and then you should be trying to persuade people, not score points off of them. There's so many people in this country who... You know, I've talked with so many of them. They say they're agnostic about promotion and relegation, but they're not going to talk about it while people are coming in spouting nonsense. For, that's for two reasons. One is the human nature defensiveness aspect of it. And you could say, well, they need to get over that. You know, that's just, uh, that's just sensitivity. You know, let's play hardball here. You can deal with that. Okay, maybe you can make that argument. It still serve a silly way to lead. But here's the second thing. Why, if, if, if I'm an MLS owner or someone at U.S. Soccer, and then you come in telling me, you know, berating me about why an open system is going to change everything, but then you have no answers to the historical lessons that I have, why should I have any confidence in you? That may be the bottom line with the Chattanooga Summit. 
you know, the Chattanooga Summit, the people who were there are going to have to watch their, you know, watch the way they phrase things going ahead. They're going to have to understand why things have been in place. You know, the pro league standards were not put in place to kill soccer in this country. They were put in place because the lower divisions were just churning out, churning over teams all the time. Because the USISL expanded wildly in the mid-90s. They even started to have promotion relegation on a very limited, weird sense. And it gradually fell apart because we weren't really vetting these teams. So you had a lot of people come in who didn't really have the commitment level. So that's why the pro lead standards exist. Now you can say that pro lead standards need to be changed. Probably. They're not going to be changed now because there's a lawsuit in progress or a couple of lawsuits in progress. So we're stuck with it until people stop suing. Sorry. But that, that's just the truth. And then when you change those pro lead standards, you do need to find a way to solve the same problem that the people who put those standards in place were trying to solve. Because a lot of these problems are still the same. Soccer is not the number one sport in this country. It's not going to be just because you change the lead system. You have to do more than that. And so if you're going to make a sales pitch to somebody, if you're going to make it to Don Garber or Carlos Cordero or even Peter Wilt, who is on your side in promotion relegation if, if, you're, if you want it to happen now, you have to demonstrate some knowledge of the situation. Y you can't just come in with a bunch of wild assumptions and expect people to take you seriously and hand you money. That's not the way life works. So. Alright, next week. I really do want to have an interview. I've got a couple people lined up, possibly. Um, one organization in particular really needs to get back to me. I'll leave it at that. Don't want to call anybody out here. So again, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash rantingsoccerdad to support the Youth Soccer Guide. Go to rantingsoccerdad.com to read more about the Soccer Guide, including the first parts of it, which are there for free. I will talk with you probably next week. Bye.